talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dinah Weeks and Dave Woodard. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 3.08. It's Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber on the board and uh, in the newsroom, Diane and Dave. Uh, Of course, tonight, Bulldogs in action. Memorial Cup getting underway. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. And uh, also, a last day of spring. Are you aware of that? Tomorrow, first day of summer, last uh, full day of spring. Uh, is today so there you go uh do you feel different do you feel any where did it go where did it go and and uh you know sort of the first one um uh we can go outside and enjoy post-covid can we say that are we allowed to say that the judges are yes we can say that all right or uh, at least living with it let's say let's go with that all right uh lots of uh news and uh i hope will man you got this clip for us uh, Mayor Fred's going to be joining us a little later on. Uh, you might remember on Friday, he sort of uh, gave us a little bonbon there. We were chatting uh, about various things, Ukraine-related, I believe. And uh, and I, so I just casually, so Fred, want to make a comment on that uh, mayor thing? You going to run? You going to... And uh, he said he would have an announcement Monday. And sure enough, today, Monday, he announced that uh, he will not be seeking re-election in the upcoming municipal vote. Uh, we got a clip of Mayor Fred, uh, Will? Here's a clip of uh, Mayor Fred earlier today. When I first ran for mayor, I promised to make the city of Hamilton cleaner, greener, and more prosperous. And I think in every way we've been able to achieve that. And, of course, there's always more to do. All right, so a little later on this hour, we're going to have uh, Mayor Fred on and uh, discuss the decision. And you know what? I mean, I think a lot of people are uh, are rethinking post-pandemic or wherever we are in this pandemic, global pandemic, and, and reevaluating things and such. And a lot of big changes, a lot of stuff, a lot of, a lot of things really shifting right now. So an exciting time for everybody. Some people want to try something different. Uh, sometimes just some new blood coming in is, uh, is a good thing too. So congratulations to Mayor, uh, Fred Eisenberger on that decision. We'll talk to him coming up, uh, a little later on. Also, I want to, uh, bring in this, uh, clip from, uh, Anita Anon, our, uh, defense minister. And um, certainly, I guess her few months, whatever, in this position, she has certainly uh, appears to be doing something, <laughs> which some may question, uh, you know, why the rest of the government isn't doing something. Uh, but Anita certainly seems to be working hard uh, in her portfolio uh, as def- as defense minister, obviously uh, cracking down on uh misconduct and and years and years of systemic uh, misconduct in the military and and you you got to think we're moving forward on that we've certainly talked about it enough here's hoping and uh and so on and now talking about uh norad and and this is especially with the invasion the russian invasion of ukraine many are saying like come on canada's got to step up you got to you know if you're going to contribute to nato if you're going to be a part of it you got to you got you have to donate your two percent and you you 
you, you have to keep your systems up to date. You can't just ship, you can't just ship people uh, old stuff. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. Um, so, and NORAD, of course, is our north, and uh, obviously there's uh, lots to protect up there. And considering what's going on with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and such, obviously this is. Uh, and there's been calls for years to to uh, do something, and it looks like it's finally going to happen. And uh, here's uh, the defense minister on modernizing the NORAD system. To modernize our continental defenses and to protect Canadians from new and emerging threats. This is the most significant upgrade to NORAD from a Canadian perspective in almost four decades. All right, and the jobs that something like this could create. The economic benefits that Canadians are going to see through the addition of tens of thousands of Canadian jobs, adding billions to our GDP per year, will make a difference in the economic lives of Canadians. All right, that's uh, Defense Minister Anita Nod announcing earlier on today $4.9 billion upgrade to uh, Canada's uh, northern air defense system, something that has uh, been obviously um, a lot of people have been talking about for an awfully long time. And I think uh, many of us still living in the past of the 80s when the Cold War was over and, and didn't expect anything uh, like we're seeing in Ukraine to happen. But uh, obviously now, uh, just like a global pandemic has poked, uh, has uh, drawn attention to Canada's uh, flawed systems, whether it's in, in um, uh, things with uh, the medical industry, uh, hospitalization, healthcare, and such, or even defense. I mean, at the end of the day, we've got to be able to take care of ourselves. We've got to be able to uh, to be self-sufficient in, in, in any way we can. And obviously more attention being put on that now, uh, post-pandemic or certainly coming out of a uh, global pandemic or living with it, whatever you want to call it. And uh, good to see that that focus is finally uh, being put where it uh, is needed, although many would be questioning why now. It appears the government's getting in a, a bit of hot water right now. A lot of people are questioning uh, where the management is and uh, what's going on. Who's driving the bus, per se? Uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, what else we got? Oh, the uh, the uh, Falcons, the Peregrine Falcons that we've been watching. Whoosh! They're swooping. They're flying around. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Uh, Mayor Fred's going to be joining us, talk about his big decision today. As well, Eric Thomas going to be joining us from Raceline Radio. You hear it every Sunday night right here on CHML. And uh, the Canadian Grand Prix wrapping up uh, this past weekend in Montreal. Uh, what a great show, as always. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, uh, the Memorial Cup and uh, obviously uh, things getting underway tonight and Hamilton Bulldogs are part of that. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Christian Leprac is going to weigh in on what the defense minister said in regard to NORAD and what that means moving forward as far as uh, as far as our defense and and is it enough also going to talk a little politics uh, whether it's municipal or federal uh, all the way around the horn per se uh, including uh, the mayor deciding he is not going to re uh, run for re-election that's all coming up over the course of hamilton today 
I guess for uh, uh, a while now we've been reporting, and, and maybe, you know, it's old news when you think about it, how long this has been, uh, been going on, uh, but Falcons perching up high on uh, at the Sheridan and, and, and nesting and such. We know the, the story. It's been happening for years. Uh, as we reported earlier on, four baby peregrine falcons uh, this time out, and uh, happy to report over the weekend all four had successful flights. Uh, circling around and coming back and, well, different flights, but uh, in the end, all got back to where they needed to be. Let's bring in Krista Jackson, Falcon Watch coordinator, and is with us now. Krista, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am doing well. Thank you for asking. Man, I can't believe how quickly these things grow. The pictures that we're looking at now, uh, a lot different in just a couple of weeks. It definitely is. I uh, actually posted on Instagram um, a picture from the banding, and then a week later, I looked at the the new pictures and I went they went from almost all white fluffs with a little black to all the dark colorings with a little bit of white and it was just over a week it's pretty amazing to see how quickly they they do grow and uh, now that they're flying that changes it completely for us so um, and- uh, I can imagine even though you've done this a few times it's it's you're probably pretty anxious when you're watching them up on the ledge they're flapping away flapping away knowing that sooner or later they're going to go airborne um, yep, definitely. Like it's, it's amazing to watch, um, see them develop and grow into the adults. Um, but every year it's the same thing. You get a little bit, bit of anxiety in your stomach there and, you know, you just watch and you know that it's going to happen and you know, there's only so much we can do, but we do what we can to help them. But Friday was a perfect example. We had, um, Dundurn was the first one to take flight. And we got a good picture of the three remaining chicks at the edge looking down, watching Dundurn fly off. And a little bit later, we had Akmar and Belfour on the ledge flapping their wings together. And we don't know for sure. They could have jumped in um, in sync with each other to go for their first flight. But uh, there was a gust of wind as well. So they could very well have just been blown off the ledge. <laughs> oh, and no. uh that was their first flight basically right together. And uh, Belfour uh, did a flight to another building and was okay. And Akmar, unfortunately, uh, she went low and did touch ground, but was not hurt. Um, it ended up with one of our senior monitors uh, had to go in for a rescue. And just to err on the side of caution, Akmar had a road trip to the Owl Foundation. Wow. Uh, she was, so, yeah. so, so what happened there? Just uh, couldn't uh, couldn't fly away? Just a little too early? What what happened there? Any what's your what's your thought? Well, when they come to the ground, um, there is great risk for them not being able to take off and fly higher, especially when it's on the first flight. So right. they do go in and rescue. And when they they assess the chick, and if there's any concern, there might have been some kind of injury. We just automatically will take them to get them checked out. If we're, we just, there is no concern, then they'll be re-released to the nest. Um, they, they go to the rooftop just by the Sheraton, um, by where the nest is, and then they can hop back in the ledge. Um, so this case, we erred on the side of caution. She went to the Owl Foundation, came back with a clean bill of health. She was driven back to the, uh, the nest later that evening, dropped off, <laughs> and she hopped back in and spent uh, the rest of the night, Saturday and part of Sunday with uh, Wednesday. So... <laughs> So do they, now that they've taken off, do they come back at all? Are they out and about? Are they to and fro? Or are they gone? 
Um, for the most part, they just fly around building to building downtown. Um, this is where the volunteers come in. So we try and have one volunteer per falcon, um, per chick, I should say. Uh, plus, we have the, call, uh, the coordinators, which will arrange who is watching which falcon. And uh, we just monitor them. So if uh, I was standing there watching Belfour and he took off flying, I would go on the radio and say that he's flown and he's heading, say, north to the Standard Life building. So then I would start heading on route. But then other people will keep an eye because, unfortunately, it's much quicker for them to fly to the building than it is for me to run across the city. And <laughs> it's not uncommon for them to go. And Belfour did it actually to us on Sunday where he flew from the David Braley to Faircloud, got to Faircloud, realized, no, I can't land there and flew off to the BDC. So, mm. you know, when you're following them, it's sometimes you can be going back and forth like a crazy person. <laughs> so what are mom and dad doing at this point? Or are they still involved? You're teaching them to hunt? How does that all work? So right now what they do is they will fly around. If a chick uh, seems to be perched too long on one building, they will come around and kind of entice them off. You can see the play between them. Um, we have had a few glimpses of one of the chicks flying near um, the parent and kind of following them around. The parents still do bring the meals to the babies. Um, and as they develop, they'll start where the, the chick has to prepare the meal a bit more where it's not just completely done for them. Hmm. Um, and then as they get older, they will start uh, doing stuff where they get them to start hunting their own prey. And when they're in flight, the parents will actually flip under them and they'll touch talons. And that's to get the babies moving the talons when they're flying, getting ready to grip prey when they're uh, hunting. Wow. So how long does this happen before they're independent? Um, it's usually... Uh, three to four weeks. It does vary on the development of the chicks. Um, but we're usually with volunteers, they're usually out three to four weeks. Um, and the coordinators usually stay an extra week past what the volunteers do. Um, they also start usually a week before the volunteers. And, you know, we basically the chicks will let us know when they're ready. When we start seeing them fly around and we're just watching steady flights, you can see them get stronger the the worry of them having a collision with the building is less. That's when we start backing off. Um, but as of right now, this is the most critical time for them because they're still learning to fly. They're learning which buildings they can land on, where where they can land. Um, Akmar actually did last night have a minor collision. Um, she was taken to, again, the Owl Foundation. And they did keep her overnight um, for observation just to make sure um, there was no damage. Sometimes bruising doesn't show till the next day. Uh, she was reassessed this morning and has, again, a clean bill of health. So she will be returned to the nest ledge this afternoon. Um, and I'll be actually posting pictures on the Instagram feed of the release when we get them. And now you are up to date. Uh, great to see four baby peregrine falcons are flying around, getting their uh, wings, per se. Krista Jackson with us, Falcon Watch Coordinator. Krista, as always, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The mayor announcing, uh, as he talked about uh, with us on Friday, that he would have an announcement on Monday, today, on whether he would run for re-election or not, and has decided he will not seek re-election in the upcoming municipal election. And Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is with us now. Fred, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, very well, Scott. Thank you. 
So how do you feel today, the day out? I mean, I can imagine what kind of thought goes into a decision like this. It's not something you do overnight. And then all of a sudden, everybody's bugging you and wanting to know when and, and you know, people like me. And then all of a sudden, you announce it. What does it feel like when it finally gets out? <laughs> With tongue in my cheek, I would say the unbridled enthusiasm I found for my departure is a little unsettling. Kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but, but truthfully, uh, it's been... Uh, very very delightful to uh, to hear uh, from you know community members and uh, I'm very pleased and proud of the work that we've done collectively and I you know I will share you know to the end of, end of my days that it's not about me it's about the team and the uh, senior management team and all the people that have put their shoulder to the wheel to get our city to where it is today and I am uh, very pleased with where we are uh, you know we 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 can add up the uh, the the uh, the LRT, which we spent an awful lot of time talking about on your show mm-hmm. and others, and uh, that knowing now that it's it's fully funded and ready to go, uh, the waterfront development. I was at uh, the Cops Pier on Saturday to uh, to acknowledge the the renaming of the Cops Pier and the great kind of recreational amenity mm-hmm. that's there now already that people are enjoying, and the great development that's happening behind that. I uh, I actually uh, uh, developed the first waterfront redevelopment plan in 1993 uh, along with some great community members that talked about the development of uh, Pier 8 all the way on through to uh, Coots Paradise and the uh, CN Rail Yards and a good chunk of that is actually happening as we speak and so uh, you know many of the things that I've been uh, you know advocating for and uh, many of the things that I've been uh, angling towards in terms of public policy are either in place or in play and uh, that makes me feel like maybe this is a good time for me to, uh, to leave on a high note and be very proud of the work that we've done collectively and then leave it to others to take it to the next level. How difficult a decision is this to make? And, and you know, you talked about your trip back to, uh, to Amsterdam and such. Mm-hmm. How difficult a decision is this? Is You know, I mean, obviously coming out of or wherever we are in this global pandemic, everybody's life has changed. Everybody mm-hmm. has reexamined uh, mm-hmm. and reanalyzed their priorities and such. What goes into making a decision like this? Well, I, I, you know, I would say age is a factor, family is a factor, uh, yeah. uh, obviously where we are in terms of uh, the city and what uh, what needs to happen next, I think are all factors. And, you know, I mean, for, for, for me, this was a, a truly a personal decision. I'm in my uh, I'm in my 69th year. I'll be 70 this year. Uh, I, I did not intend to uh, to make this my life's work, although I pretty much put 30 years into the city of Hamilton uh, and and it's been an honor and privilege to do that. Uh, but there comes a point uh, where others need to uh, bring their energy and enthusiasm to the next level to, you know, to, to lift it to, you know, to the next level of uh, redevelopment and vision and opportunity. Uh, you know, I've always believed in, in term limits and, you know, for better or for worse, I'm limiting my three-term mayorship, which was interrupted by one term, mm. uh, and saying, you know, there's there's a time, uh, you know, to stay and there's a time to go. And uh, for me, this is the right time to go. I do have uh, aspirations to slowing down a little bit. And being mayor, you know, it's, it's a 24-7 engagement. This is not yeah. something that yeah. you can just turn off. Uh, you know, the, the moment you're elected mayor, you are the mayor and you have fundamental responsibility. And I, I don't know how to do it halfway. And so for me, it was a, a full-time engagement and it occupies not only your time, but your mind, uh, you know, for all of that period of time. And uh, I loved it. 
And I, I rose to the challenge and I've had a great team behind me uh, helping me do that uh, in the absence of which it would have been impossible. But there comes a time when uh, you do want to step back a little bit and you can't do the mayor's job halfway. I can't dial it in. That's yeah. not my style. And so the next mayor has to be a 24-7 mayor. They have to be all encompassing, all engaged and uh, ready to take to the next level. And I don't feel that I, uh, I can, uh, can make that level of commitment for the next four years. So it's really yeah. a personal decision, Scott. And, um, you know, whatever happened through pandemic, we came out of the pandemic spectacularly well. Uh, the citizens of Hamilton should congratulate themselves for, you know, following good advice and all the messaging that we uh, delivered to them and the, and the unusual things we did. And as I sit before you today, uh, I look back and it, it's almost surreal, some of the things that we mm -hmm. had to do, completely shutting down our city, shutting down play structures, shutting down walkways. I mean, it was right now you think about it and go, did we really do that? But we did. And we did it only only because we wanted to keep people safe. And the, the lion's share of the population fully understood what was necessary and participated. So credit to the entire community for coming out of this pandemic as well as we have. I encourage them to uh, stay vaccinated and get boosted and do, uh, you know, all the good public health advice. But uh, now it's time for me to, uh, to kind of back up a little and uh, start thinking about maybe a smaller contribution, but a contribution nonetheless in some other way. And, I, you know, Mayor, I, I'm not sure, and, and being in the media, obviously, our paths cross every so often, but I, I and that's one thing I don't think citizenry, the citizenry really uh, understand, and that is, no matter where you are on, on city council and what you're doing, it really is a 24-7 uh, job. I mean, my goodness, every function you go to, somebody would be there, and, and, and it really is a massive, massive uh, time commitment. What advice do you have for those uh, younger, those coming up, that, that maybe want to seek a, a job in politics, uh, especially at this point where we are in life. Yeah, what, what, what I always say for for anyone is that, you know, you don't you don't have to get elected to, to, to demonstrate leadership. You can do that in your on your street and in your community. But if you're uh, if you're interested in taking that to another level, I would never discourage anyone from stepping into uh, you know the elected process. It has uh, it has lots of challenges, but enormous enormous benefits. And I, I'll tell you that I've had great personal benefit uh, uh, emotionally and uh, had, had the, the, uh, the, the really unique ability to see every facet of our great city. And that is a, that is a privilege that very few people uh, get the honor to have. And, uh, you know, that is what's possible if you, uh, you know, engage at a higher different political level as you work your way up, or you work at the city of Hamilton and support the, uh, the, uh, the administration, uh, there are, you know, myriads of opportunities and how to get engaged in civic, civic activities. And, you know, you don't have to be the mayor or the councilor to do that. There are many, many other ways to, uh, to, to engage and participate. But the key is to participate. And, uh, you know, I would encourage anyone, um, you know, at any age to engage in their local community and their neighborhood, uh, know your neighbors, get to know your your community council and your local parks association. Those are all ways that we can collectively contribute to making our city better. And uh, I, I would always, always, always encourage people to take a step into that in, in that direction.
Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger with us announcing today he will not seek re-election in the upcoming municipal vote. Mayor, uh, congratulations on a great run and uh, all the best to you, whatever you decide to do uh, moving forward. I'm sure we'll chat again, but uh, uh, congratulations on a, on a monumental milestone so decision. I will, right. uh, I will be around for another six months, so I'm not gone yet, but, uh, but uh, you know, I'll, 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 I've always enjoyed our interactions, uh, Scott, and sharing that information with the broader community is so critically important, and you folks do it spectacularly well, so thank you. Thank you, Mayor. Mayor Fred Eisenberger not seeking re-election in the up, uh, upcoming municipal election. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Obviously, F1 in Montreal over the course of the weekend. To talk more about all of this, Eric Thomas is with us. Raceline Radio Network. You can hear him every Sunday night right here on CHML. He is with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. We're good. We're good. It's um, nice to be back on with you. We set it up, so only only logical that we wrap it up. And if you were... You know, it sounds like a like the corny refrain when something goes well. But if you were, if you're going to script the return of uh, an automobile race as big as the Formula One Canadian Grand Prix at Circuit Villeneuve, Notre Dame, on the Montreal waterfront, you could not have scripted it any better. It was an absolutely picture perfect day weather-wise. Yeah. I mean, they sloshed around qualifying the day before in the rain, but it all had moved out, and it was a, a coolish afternoon and was not uncomfortable at all. You could still be in, in shirt sleeves and T-shirts and whatever, but the drivers weren't dying, and the track temperatures weren't way, way up like they sometimes can be this time of year when you saw a heck of a race and a, a dominant win by Max Verstappen, but you saw a resurgence of Lewis Hamilton after a season-long struggle to get at least on the podium, and uh, the grandstands looked to be darn full just about each and every one of them, so it was just as about a perfect as a return of this race after being down and dark for two years because of COVID than I think you could possibly hope for. And how cool to see Fernando Alonso on the front row, uh, for whatever <laughs> reason. I mean, it's hilarious. When Last time he won a championship, most of the grid that you saw that day hadn't even started in Formula 1. Yeah, so that tells you how long that guy has been around, and and he was he was very good about it, and and Fernando is one of those guys who who's a former champion and and is driving for Alpine, which is certainly not one of the top flight teams, but he's having fun out there. And if you watched him in some of the preliminary uh, television stuff, the roll up, he's joking with the fans, and of course in Montreal, like no other track on the circuit. Maybe the exception of Monaco, but they're certainly not anywhere there like they are in Montreal. The fans are so close to the fence, so close to the walls that they're right down where the drivers are, and they're yelling out names, and and the drivers are waving back, and he's kidding around with people on the grid, and he's laughing. He says, "You know, we may be up here now, but we're probably not going. I can't do his accent. We're probably going to be like fifth or sixth by the end." Of the, you know, and he had a, yeah. a, a put back two spots on the grid because he was weaving on the last lap and of course he faded there was an engine problem so you know it was good to see him up there because you know it uh, he was it wasn't gonna you know he was even realistic he's not gonna be able to stay there but it was nice to see that and when it rains in qualifying you know that's the great equalizer you've been around the sport long enough to know Mm -hmm. that if you're gonna qualify in the rain all of a sudden somebody will pop in there and get near the front you're not expecting and alonzo was that guy but it's just too bad he couldn't carry it out but he predicted he wouldn't be able to and, and in the end he was right Obviously, Max Verstappen running away this season. What's happening to Lewis Hamilton? I mean, uh, this is the first time I think he's he's finished ahead of his teammate. Uh, what's going on there? Well, yeah, uh, there's a lot going on. Um, it goes back to the fact that he got robbed for a record-shattering yeah. eighth championship last year in the last race in Bahrain because of some pretty funky race direction. 
And what happened was the timing of the brand-new regulations in the cars this year are a whole lot different. The arrow in the cars is a whole lot different than it was last year in terms of downforce coming from most of the undertray of the car as opposed to wings in the front, wings in the back. Not to get too technical, but they really missed the mark in the design, and the car has been porpoising or bouncing really, really violently. They're not the only one. Most of the teams, with the exception of Red Bull, who got it right, um, the, the Mercedes team have given Lewis a car that he can't compete with until he got to Montreal and finished on the podium with a car that earlier in the weekend said was complete junk. He shows up on the podium, and Russell is right behind him in fourth place, so maybe they have found something. But the astounding part of it is, is it's multi, as I said on, on the weekend going into this, Scooter, with you, is that there's a multi-billion dollar racing operation, Mercedes Formula One, and they can't seem to be able to fix this. Well, with the new rule, they're going to try and govern the ride height, like how the car is, how high it is off the ground, low hmm. or in the medium or way up high, trying to counter this bouncing, which is really punishing and hurting the drivers. Whether that's going to help Mercedes and hinder Red Bull, I don't know, but there's a lot of teeth gnashing going on behind the scenes here, trying to come up with a rule that's going to be good for everybody. So that's basically what's happened to Lewis, is they gave him a hockey stick that breaks every time he takes a shot on goal, which ain't hmm. good, and they haven't been able to fix it up to now, so maybe the result in Montreal, where he won his first race, and he won Montreal seven times up to this point. So, you know, there was a good place for maybe, maybe, hopefully to see a turnaround. But their season has been a struggle, and he's been outperformed by his uh, his young English counterpart. Yeah. I mean, he's, yeah, uh, you know, George Russell is only in his 20s, and Lewis is 37, you know, so there's a, there's a difference there. But now, if, if they give Lewis a car he can fight with, he can get some of this back. He's not going to win the championship this year. He's already conceded that, and I think most people know that. But um, it would be nice to see him jump back to the front because now you've got Red Bull up there with Verstappen. He's a defending champion. Ferrari has been up there. They've been they've been handcuffed by a few mechanical problems as well. But Leclerc started in the back, finished fifth. And Carlos Sainz and the other Ferrari was given Max Fitz near the end of that race and almost matched his pace, just couldn't get close enough for the pass. So there was a lot of really good storylines like that out of the weekend in Montreal. All right, Eric Thomas with us, Raceline Radio Network. You can hear him every Sunday night right here on CHML, uh, wrapping up Montreal's F1. Uh, first uh, first one for them in a while. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Lots of fun, buddy, and uh, we'll get together at the racetrack soon. All right, uh, after a three-year stint, or three-year wait, rather, uh, the biggest prize in Major Junior Hockey once again uh, up for grabs, the host St. John Sea Dogs entertain league champions from Edmonton, Hamilton, and Quebec in the 2022 Memorial Cup. And it all starts tonight with the Hamilton Bulldogs. And to talk more about all of this, Scott Radley is with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, although doing the morning show this week. And you can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's cub, uh, covering the Memorial Cup as well. Scott, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing great, Scott. How are you? So far, so good. Uh, explain how this tournament works. Explain how we get to winning the Memorial Cup. Well, it's pretty simple. There is a uh, the Ontario champion, which is the Bulldogs, and the Quebec champion, which is the Shawinigan Cataracts, and the Western champion, which is the Edmonton Oil Kings, all go to the host city, which in this case is St. John, New Brunswick, to play the Sea Dogs, and they have a round robin and then playoffs, and the winner is the winner. And um, last time Hamilton did this was four years ago, it was 2018. And, you know, had a great team and had a ton of injuries and ran into a problem that, you know, it's very interesting how similar the situation looks for Hamilton right now, even though we haven't played a game yet. And hopefully the result is different. Last time it was in Regina and the Bulldogs ended up drawing for their first game, the host team, the Regina Pats. 
who had been eliminated in the first round of their own playoff series 46 days before and hadn't had a game in 46 days. Wow. And it looked like, hey, this is easy pickings for the Bulldogs coming in here. And you know what? Regina caught everyone off guard and made it all the way to the finals in that thing. Well, tonight, Hamilton draws the host, which lost in the first round of its league championship 39 days ago, hasn't had a game since then, fired its coach, and now has a new coach just for the Memorial Cup. Then you look and you say, you know, it should be easy pickings. Again, this is the, this is the game that you think Hamilton should be able to get off to a great start. Here's the problem with that, Scott. The St. John Sea Dogs were one of the best teams in the Quebec League. Them getting bounced out of the playoffs was, was an upset. They are not a, you know, a host team who's just hosting and they stink. So this is, this is not an easy start for Hamilton tonight. And even though this is the game that you look at and you say, hey, it's the host, we should be feasting on them, not necessarily. This is going to be a very tough one for them. Uh, so obviously host team gets in because they're hosting it and right. such. Has the host team gone on to win it through this? Uh, it has happened uh, twice in the last 12 years, I think. Windsor was the last one. But keep one other thing. Here's another Hamilton story, and people of a certain vintage will remember this. The host automatically gets in, except in 1990 in Hamilton. Do you remember the story? No. The Dukes of Hamilton that year hosted, and they were so atrocious. They won 11 games all year. They were so bad that it was determined that it would really not be fair for a team that is so absolutely putrid <laughs> to be playing in the national championship. So Hamilton hosted the event without a host team in the thing. Kitchener got in, in instead of Hamilton. Yeah, there yeah. you go. <laughs> yeah, that That's a average. good memory, isn't it? <laughs> well, oh, man. And that was the year that Eric Lindros was in junior. So they still, the thing was, fortunately for Hamilton, they still drew huge crowds because Eric Lindros back then was such a draw. He was such yeah. a rising star. But yeah, that was uh, that was the one time when there was no host team. But yes, generally you get in because you're hosting. So uh, obviously this uh, tournament has not been on due to pandemic and such. Right. And these a lot, a lot of these players are on their way to the pros. How has this interfered with the farm team system and and getting young players up into the major and into the big leagues? Really not, really not, because these are the guys who they're still. They're, not, they're still not there. I mean, they're being drafted or they have been drafted, but they haven't made their NHL team yet. There's, there's nobody here who would have been in the NHL right now. If they wanted them, they could have had them, the guys who were drafted. So it's, it's not affected that at all. Now, I mean, a broader question about has it affected development? Uh, probably. Mm. I mean, not playing for, well, the, the hockey stopped, I think, March the 13th of 2020, and then... So there were no playoffs, and then there was no hockey last year. So you can make a case that some of these guys have lost development opportunity. And you can make a case, Scott, a good case. A few of the guys who will be playing in this tournament, including a few of the Bulldogs, that last year cost them a chance to be drafted because mm. in their draft year, when they were 17 turning 18, they may not have been Did we lose Scott? Oh, there he is. Sorry, no, you're just, cutting in and out there. Sorry, just a, a year of not playing, but of you know, has cost some of these guys a draft yeah, spot in yeah. the NHL. But a year later, they're bigger, they're stronger. For whatever mm -hmm. reason, the light bulb has gone on. Perfect example, guy in the Bulldogs named Logan Morrison, who just led the, he's led the team in scoring in the playoffs, led the team in scoring in the regular season, just won the Wayne Gretzky 99 trophy as the playoff MVP. Never drafted. 
and had he had last year to play, probably would have been. Hmm. All right, dogs' chances during this tournament. They've got to be pretty good. I mean, they've. I always go back to the fact that you, you get, they didn't go fifty six, fifty seven, and seven since the start of the new year by accident. Um, you know, their chances are pretty good. The one real thing that you know you worry about is they've got the captain is not going to play. I don't believe because he got hurt last round, and he's a really important part of this team. And a few other guys are banged up. That said, I assume that every team is with guys who are banged up by this point. So uh, I think you know, their chances are their chances should be excellent, Scott. One more thing. I know you got to run, but this is the reason I'm hedging a little. This is the mystery tournament because mm-hmm. you don't see people around here. We don't see Shawinigan play. We just don't. We don't watch the Edmonton Oil Kings play. We don't see St. John's St. John play. We really have no idea how they're going to match up or anything else. So it, it's, it's a mystery, but you would expect that based on the year they had Hamilton. Uh, I, I don't expect Hamilton to do poorly. Let's put it that way. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley show doing the morning show this week, filling in for Rick. And you can also read him in your Hamilton spectator covering the Memorial cup and uh, Bulldogs and St. John sea dogs tonight. Scott, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Thanks. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. As autocratic regimes threaten the rules-based international order that has protected us for decades, and as our competitors develop new technologies like hypersonic weapons and advanced cruise missiles, there is a pressing need to modernize Canada's NORAD capabilities. We need a nod earlier today talking about uh, $4.9 billion to upgrade uh, NORAD. And, you know, obviously the U.S. has been asking for this for an awful long time. But uh, uh, the government, not necessarily um, military, not necessarily the number one, um, I I guess, uh, on the to-do list with us obviously falling behind in our uh, commitments to NATO. So uh, kind of surprising, I guess, or maybe not to see this now, especially now uh, much more uh, needed much more than ever with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. To talk more about all of this, Christian Leprac, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute. He is with us now. Christian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, I'm indeed. Good afternoon. So your thoughts on this announcement today? Are you surprised? Why now? Yeah, so this was the one piece that was left out of Strong, Secure, Engaged in 2017, so the current defense policy, in part because nobody knew how to move forward. Everybody knew on both sides of the border that it needed to be done, but under the Trump administration, everybody was worried that uh, if Trump caught on that there was such a thing as NORAD, given what he did with NAFTA, uh, that might be bad news for everybody. So everybody kind of kept it quiet, and with Biden administration, that offered a window of opportunity uh, to have a frank conversations, and of course, with the invasion of Ukraine, this became an ever more present issue. And in some ways, it's convenient for the Liberal government uh, because uh, the investment had to be made anyway, and the decision was long overdue on it. But Canada can, it looks like Canada is now spending again on defense, at least to our allies and in particular to Washington. Um, And so it curries us some favor in Washington and inherently uh, a defense, effective defense of the continent is also effective defense of NATO members and allies because 
because if the continent is not secure, it means the United States cannot play its role as both a protector as well as the extended nuclear deterrence that the United States provides uh, to European and other allies and partners. Would we be talking about this if Russia hadn't invaded Ukraine? Yeah, I think we'd be talking about it, but there would have certainly been a lot less urgency, in part because there would have been a lot less scrutiny uh, by Washington um, of both Canadian and allied defense spending. And so I suspect the negotiations would have taken longer uh, and the formula might have looked different. What's interesting here is that the formula is the formula we've always had. It's a 60-40 cost share um, in terms of the overhaul of um, equipment that really dates back to 1984, which is the last time we had a major overhaul. Uh, I mean, how many of us are still driving a car from 1984, right? So, I mean, some of the equipment has mm. been upgraded since, but uh, it required in light of, in particular, hypersonic missiles, uh, but also other threats to the North American uh, airspace, uh, a significant uh, investment in uh, capabilities to deter adversaries. And it's not just about security. I think this is something people often forget in this conversation. This is very much about Canadian sovereignty and North American sovereignty, because if an adversary is in the position to be able to threaten us with missiles, it now means that they can curtail our democratic sovereign decision-making because if we can't make the decisions that we think in our best interest because we feel threatened by an adversary, uh, then that curtails um, our democracy and, uh, and decision-making. So keeping the continent safe is very much also about, uh, about, Canadian, um, about Canadian democracy in an era where uh, the North and Canada, which used to be flyover country for nuclear weapons in the 1950s, are now very much a target because of how integrated we are. It doesn't matter so much whether you hit the United States or Canada, the disruption would be substantial. Um, and so uh, Canada, this is more so in Canada's interest than it has ever been as an investment. Uh, what what exactly are they going to do? Is it going to be enough or is this just sort of token spending? Uh, what does this protect us from or what? Will well, it I think it is from? an important down payment. The most it is the most urgent piece of NORAD renewal or what the United States calls NORAD next. That is to say the renewal of the radar of the North warning system air defense capability um, radar. Um, and uh, everything in the north takes a long time, and it's very expensive. It's very different than, for instance, replacing a radar station here in the south. You can figure everything is about 10 times expensive in the north just because the infrastructure and so forth doesn't exist. So I would say it is a down payment um, on overhauling continental defense more broadly, but it is tackling the piece that required most urgent and immediate attention, especially now not just in light of Russia um, having tested hypersonic missiles, but actively deploying these missiles uh, in the Ukrainian conflict and having shown clear intent to use the weapons uh, that Russia has been, has, but also China have been developing. What does it say, the fact that we're having these conversations now uh, in the world today? Is the attitude changing now? Yeah, I think we got to put this in the context of in 1940, Canada and the U.S. made a decision, uh, the Augsburg Declaration and the Kingston Dispensation by the then president and prime minister, that basically amounted to Canada and the U.S. working together to keep the threats of the world far away from the continent. And you might argue that that decision has arguably made North America the most prosperous, the most stable, the most desirable society that perhaps the history of the world has ever known. And in that regard, um, 
continuity of that strategy that has served us very well for decades requires us to make sure that we can continue to persevere in making sure that adversaries can threaten us, let alone reach uh, the North American continent. Um, and with the technological advances that we've seen in particular over the last 25 years or so, uh, the game has fundamentally changed of what that means. And I can't tell you how much we need to be standing on defense, but I can tell you two things. One, defense is an insurance policy and the premium we've been paying on that policy has been vastly insufficient relative to the very changed and dangerous um, environment in which we live. And the other is that defense is ultimately a political instrument and that the government I think has finally understood that an investment in defense is also an investment in our primarily political relationship, bilateral relationship with the United States and Washington and to be taken seriously uh, as a credible ally. What are your thoughts? And we were talking about this last week: the uh, Russia and and um, China and such forming another G eight or G seven or what have you of those like minded countries. I mean, even that's got to uh, scare the bejeebers out of a few people. Yeah, but certainly the advantage that we have is a much lower transaction cost. So NORAD has this is a functional arrangement that gives us considerable leverage in the United States over both strategic and military decision making, as well as some political decision making. And uh, NATO uh, uh, provides very low tr uh, transaction costs among the 30 allied countries in terms of the, the uh, defense arrangements for the transatlantic space, North America, as well as for Europe. And the challenge is that nowhere else in the world do you find these types of institutions that are able to allow for such a high degree of coordination, cooperation, collaboration at such relatively low costs, both financial and uh, bureaucratic. And so I would say this would be, this will take a very long time for anyone else to replicate. And you can see in the Asia Pacific, the challenge that we're having in asserting our is precisely the absence of these types of institutions. So yes, our adversaries are trying to be more coordinated, but I would say certainly on the institutional arrangements and the functional arrangements such as NORAD, um, that gives us considerable leverage and a considerable advantage. Uh, the defense minister has announced today more money for NORAD, uh, $4.9 billion to improve uh, surveying the North and defending the North. Christian Leprec has been with us, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. Christian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. A real pleasure. Thank you. Have a great afternoon. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, uh, which represents about 750 Canadian National Railway Company employees, say that signal and communication workers have walked off the job across the country. What does that mean for an already challenged supply chain? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. He's with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing fine, thank you. Glad to be with you. Marvin, I remember talking to you, uh, actually, I guess it was November of 2019, just before COVID hit, about uh, another uh, stoppage of trains. And it certainly had lots of people upset, uh, especially concerned about transporting energy to and fro. Is this one anywhere close to the size of that one? Uh, will it be as disruptive or will it? Mm -hmm. So before I answer your question, uh, this isn't the only two times we've chatted about this. 
You might remember in January of 2020, there were uh, blockages on train lines because of the Wet'suwet'en people and the yep. line that was being built through there. Uh, that kind of went away as soon as COVID hit in March. But then earlier this year, we had a CP rail strike that was looming. We had another one last fall. And there are many different unions that are involved with our two major train companies. So to your general point, any disruption of the supply chain is not good at this time. One of the reasons that we have inflation is that we're not able to match the uh, supply of goods to the demand. In other words, demand is higher than supply, and that's putting prices up. Now, the only bit of good news here is we're talking about a much smaller number of workers, 750. CN, at least at this point, says that it has uh, uh, non-union staff that can temporarily fill that void and move it forward. But in fairness to those people who are on strike, what better time to put forward your ideas and your demands at a time that they feel they've got CN over a bit of a barrel? So again, I think an interesting question is if this strike were to go on for several weeks, would the federal government uh, step in and say, look, we got to have you folks back to work uh, uh, you know, do binding arbitration or something. So not well time from our standpoint, but from the worker's standpoint, best time possible to put forward your ideas. Yeah, I think we might be seeing a bit more of that in the near future. Um, how long will uh, government let this go on? How long will they let uh, the supply chain be disrupted before they put pressure to get things uh, moving again? Right. So the, the short answer is, I think it's going to depend upon what which supply chains are being disrupted. You know, the one that we are most uh, focused on these days is energy and the price at the pumps. Yes, we've seen a little fallback in the Hamilton area. Gas is back below two dollars a liter, although hardly, hardly far mm. away from it. About a dollar ninety-five a liter. So we're not we're not out of the woods at all. But if, for instance, those train cars full of petroleum were being disruptive and delayed, I think the government would have more of an interest rather than let's say you know its shipment of of uh, cell phones or smartphones or or computers, well, if you don't get your smartphone for another week, it's not the end of the world. So I think we're going to have to wait and see how long this goes and then which parts of the supply chain are being disrupted. My gut feeling is that CN is going to put a priority on moving things like oil and putting any non-union people they have to fill the void on those sorts of issues and maybe let the other ones go. But it's always going to be difficult. And to your first point, they're not the only union out there. You, can you remember, it wasn't that long ago, we were talking about the trades, we were looking for wage increases. Remember again, when you're facing 6.8% inflation, a 3% pay increase doesn't sound like you're keeping up at all. So mm. there are a lot of union people who are looking for uh, uh, contracts this year. They're all going to be looking for better than normal wage increases. You talked about energy and that taking a priority. Does this put any more on the discussion to uh, create infrastructure or build pipelines? Or should we be building more rail lines? Yeah. Well, uh, again, two two quick examples. We already have 730,000 kilometers of pipelines active in Canada. The problem, of course, is those pipelines are quite full. Now, next year, uh, in at the end of the first quarter of 2023, the twinned Trans Mountain Pipeline is going to come on board. They've been building that over the last couple of years, and dare I say, quietly building this over the last couple of years. It, when it comes on board, that'll bring another 600,000 barrels a day of energy into the marketplace to be sold. So that's that's a great move forward. But again, when you talk about pipelines, you've got to think about the return on investment. And if by the year 2030, we are mostly buying and selling electric vehicles, 
then what is the, do we build a pipeline to be used for eight years? And so those are, those are the kind of tough questions that we're looking at. Train cars seem to make the most sense because generally speaking, train transportation has been hardly disruptive at all. But here's a great example when there's a work stoppage of how, again, that reliable supply chain suddenly becomes unreliable. Do we have enough rail lines? Should we be having, should we be constructing? Should we be building more? You know, again, I, I think the answer is we're doing fine uh, with the two big companies, CP and CN. Um, I think the question many people are asking is whether we should be electrifying some of those lines. You might know that, for instance, Go runs between mm-hmm. Hamilton and Toronto on, I think, it's CN lines, and they are looking to do a deal with CN to turn that into electrically driven so then the, you can phase out the diesel-powered Go trains. So I don't necessarily think we need more lines, but clearly... Um, when, when workers see an opportunity to push their case, they're going to do it. They realize the world's over a bit of a barrel and, and there's a little more pressure on management to give what they want. I can't blame them for trying. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University, International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, representing 750 Canadian national employees, uh, signal and communications workers walking off the job. Marvin, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. I will. Glad to be with you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. As uh, we were chatting last week on Friday, uh, questioning Mayor Fred, what he was going to do, if he had made any decisions yet. And, you know, it's like every time he came on, we'd ask him. And I think he got tired of us asking him. And he's, you know, he's kind of making jokes about it. And then all of a sudden he threw it on Friday. Yeah, I'll let you know on Monday. And oh, okay. And sure enough, today he announced that uh, he will not run for re-election for the mayor for the city of Hamilton. To talk about the fallout and what this means for the city moving forward, let's bring in Peter Gray, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks. And you too. Uh, so does this change anything? We all know the mayor only has one vote on council. Uh, does it does it matter who that one vote is? What does it do to set the tone? What are your thoughts on this announcement today? Well, I mean, you know, there's the announcement and what does a mayor do? I mean, I think, you know, if uh, a mayor is only one vote, uh, but a mayor who plays their, well, uh, their role well can really serve as a kind of the moral compass for the city. Uh, and also can play a role of trying to bring the various councillors together around a common vision. And I don't think we've seen uh, those things really happen much uh, in Hamilton, at least not since 2006. We might see Larry Deany as having been a somewhat more successful mayor, but either Fred Eisenberger nor Bob Bertina, I think, have been particularly successful in that kind of team aspect of the mayoralty. And then, yeah, it really does become uh, just one vote around the council table. I mean, what does it change today? I think it really does uh, blow the mayor race, uh, you know, much more open. Uh, there may be some people who had considered to be candidates in the past, but who felt, well, if, if Fred Eisenberger is there pulling, you know, 25% of the vote, there just aren't enough votes left for me to be competitive. Uh, you know, now that that block of votes is open, perhaps uh, there'll be uh, other candidacies coming forward. Obviously, as soon as you throw a global pandemic into the mix, uh, politicians uh, pretty much had their work cut out for them and the job was tossed on its ear. There's no plan for that. Uh, how much do you think that is or uh, was a factor in any of this? And obviously we're, we're speculating, but many people have come out of this or through this and are, are rejigging their priorities. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, I think in a case like this, you have uh, a mayor who, you know, has been mayor for 12 years uh, out of the last 16. 
uh, who's pushing 70 years of age. I, I mean, I think there's other things going on in, in this context about, on the one hand, uh, you know, Fred Eisenberger's desire to, to keep going, you know, particularly as some files that were important in at least two of his, uh, you know, re-elections, uh, you know, the LRT seemed to be moving forward. You know, and then also, you know, the, the, the interest of citizens to have the exact same politicians every time or perhaps, you know, looking for change. So, yeah, the pandemic maybe has pushed people a little. But I think, you know, again, the, the thought that maybe uh, Fred Eisenberger had overstayed his welcome was present before the pandemic. Um, you know, that sort of thought that maybe there was a need for change, I think, was there before. I'm not sure that the pandemic has, has had as a big effect municipally in part because our municipal government mostly disappeared, except for our public health uh, officers, uh, you know, from from our political lives. As so much was uh, focused on what the federal and provincial governments were doing with the pandemic. Uh, his legacy, LRT? Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, certainly he was in favor of that project. But at the same time, you know, in many ways, yes, yeah, legacy is getting there, but maintaining the minimum winning coalition to get it. Mm. Uh, yeah. You know, the city did get LRT, but there was no kind of forward moving vision about how we could, you know, integrate the other things the cities were doing or how this was a win for the city and build a, a broad, a broad uh, vision that brought Hamiltonians together about, you know, a next step. It was it was really a, a very, very thin win. So, I mean, that is his legacy, I guess, but it's it's a bit of a mixed one. You know, he may be remembered best for his really miraculous win in the 2006 uh, municipal campaign where he was running against an incredibly well-funded and organized uh, outgoing mayor, uh, Mayor Diani, and, and managed to win, you know, with a really small and folksy campaign. Um, you know, unfortunately, they removed the YouTube videos from 2006 in the early days of YouTube. But, you know, quite amusing how, how amateur that campaign was and yet managed to, to federate an anti-Diani vote and, and win in the most improbable fashion. So that's not a, an actual kind of, you know, substantive policy achievement, but in some ways... Uh, it's probably what's most memorable for his, his years uh, as mayor was uh, the surprising victory in the first place. So now the discussion moves as to who will replace him. Uh, obviously, we'll find out that after a municipal vote. Uh, thoughts on rumors floating that maybe Andrea Horbath, leader of the opposition, might throw her hat in the ring. Does leader of, of the opposition make you a good candidate for the mayor? Yeah, I don't think by itself uh, that position prepares you a lot for uh, you know municipal council. Certainly, in uh, the mayor's statement today, he seemed to uh, tease uh, Andrea Horvath's candidacy. Uh, you know, it's not clear if he was stepping aside because he felt that was going to happen and that it was going to be too uh, tight a race for him or whether, he in fact, is opening the door to that. But uh, that's a possibility. But, I mean, it's certainly a case of a candidate who has had experience on Hamilton City Council, but a very different Hamilton, uh, you know, of the new city 20 plus years ago. Um, I think it would be a bit of a challenge for Andrea Horvath to make the case for how she understands where the city is now uh, and also to convince uh, citizens, right, that uh, just having been elected a few days ago uh, for a four-year term, uh, you know, that she now uh, can move on to a next candidacy. So, you know, that'll be another challenge if, if she chooses to throw her hat in the ring, one, to show that she understands where Hamilton is now, and second, uh, you know, to deal with the question of why not serve out her, her existing term. Peter Grape with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, talking about Mayor Fred Eisenberger deciding not to run for re-election and who may replace him. Peter, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. And you too. A new study shows that Canadian employers are willing to hire workers without 
uh, experience to a related job just simply due to the tight labor market. As long as the attitude's good and there's a willing to, uh, willingness to learn, uh, many uh, organizations are deciding uh, we can train you. You don't need any previous training. To talk more about this and a rail strike that could be slowing down our supply chain even more, let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He's with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing very well. Thanks, Scott. Uh, first of all, before we get into uh, this and, and hiring workers without the uh, related experience, your thoughts on uh, what we're hearing with an impending rail strike, or I guess they have walked off, electrical workers, about 750. We remember uh, what happened just a couple of years ago with uh, rail stoppages and such. Are you concerned about the same thing happening this time out and considering where the supply chain is now? Absolutely. Um, everybody should be concerned. Um Unlike Europe, where they have 500 million people in little tiny postage stamp countries, you could put all of Europe into a small part of Canada. So they've got unbelievable densities of 250, 500 people per square uh, per square kilometer. So what? Well, it means you have many, many alternatives, many, many different railroads, many different alternatives to ship stuff. Canada is the antithesis, the exact opposite. We're a tiny, tiny little country. I know we like to think we're huge. We're 38 million people, smaller than one state in the U.S. called the state of California, and we're strung out over 9 million kilometers. It's incredible, okay? Uh, And uh, so what I'm getting at is that we are completely and totally dependent on the infrastructure, the transportation infrastructure. We have known this from the beginning. We had to say to BC to get them to join Canada. They said, yeah, but only if you build us a railroad because they knew that we were, you know, you need this transportation system. And I don't just mean railroads, ports, airports, roads, pipelines. It's all part of the transportation infrastructure. And very quickly on this, Parliament has legislated striking workers in transportation sector back from 1950 to 2015, 36 times. Hmm. And they did it because they understand we cannot, we're so dependent, everyone in the country, we cannot allow a, um, a, a protest or a strike to interrupt the, the system that everybody is so dependent on. So therefore, I will predict with great confidence the strike will come to an end very quickly because if they don't, Parliament will legislate it back just as they did every other time since 1950. And obviously, with the energy situation the way it is, that's a prize cargo for them. Uh, nobody's going to want to see those prices go higher. That's right. I mean, this is just um, this is the, <laughs> the last. Not that you ever want any kind of a transportation strike. And I did the research on this. The Parliamentary Library provided me with the list of every bill from 1950 until now. And it was just amazing. I mean, they legislated back airlines, airports, the GTA, uh, railroads, Port of Vancouver, Port of Montreal, National CN, uh, CNR, you know, Canadian National Railroad, Canadian Pacific. Didn't matter. They weren't picking on them. It's the, we are completely dependent. And now in this situation with the supply chain mess and the inflation going crazy, it's far worse a situation. I understand the workers. I understand. They're suffering. They're saying, look, the inflation, we can't afford it. But they cannot be allowed to stop the system. They got to to shut down the transportation system. So I think it will be ended very quickly. 
Do we need, you're talking about infrastructure, whether it's roads, pipelines, what have you. Do we need more rail lines in this country? Probably so. Um, we've only got two railroads and, um, and we don't, they're not, um, you know, they don't have five or six or seven different tracks running through um, the, the, the Rockies, which is, of course, the critical point. Uh, just very quickly, we, the transportation system, of course, is not just railroad. It's, it's trucking which runs on the roads, the Trans-Canada, and it's also airplanes, airlines. The problem is, is that there's some things you can ship on the one, but not the other. You can ship high technology chips, little size of my fingernail, and it's worth $2,000. So you can put those on an airplane because the weight to value ratio is extraordinary. Very small weight, very high value, or diamonds, something like that. But you're not going to put steel or iron ore on an airplane. It just isn't economic. So that tends to ship on railroads and ships, if at all possible, marine. And uh, so the economics of each product drives which uh, type of uh, transportation system you're going to use. Well, it's heavy stuff and, and commodities like wheat and barley and other agricultural products that go on railroads. And for years, we've talked about expanding it, but it's very, very costly because again, Canada is so enormously uh, large. All right, so let's talk about this new study showing that Canadian employers are willing to hire workers without experience related to the job just because of the tight labor market. Uh, we certainly see the ball is, or the favor and the ball is in uh, yes. the employee's court at this point. What does this mean moving forward? And, and uh, are they lowering standards or just providing training here? You know, this this is a permanent shift. This, this is fascinating. I've actually, and, and quite a few others who study demography and look at demographic data, uh, have been predicting this for a very long time because demography is perfectly predictable. You know, you know, once you know every year how many people are born, you can predict how many are entering the labor force 18 or 20 mm-hmm. or 22 years later. I mean, that's the amazing thing about demography. It is absolutely predictable. You know, if you know that I'm just make up a number. If 200,000 Canadians were born in the year 2000, well, you're not going to say in 2020 that there was a half a million Canadians born in, in, in 2020. Once that year has gone by, you know what your future population is from that year. So we know that there's shortages for coming down the pipes because we know that the birth rate has collapsed. It's down to 1.4. So this was coming for a long time. It's not because of COVID. To your listeners who say, oh, it's just COVID, it's going to go away. No, this is going to be the reality of our country and the other high-income countries that were that are experiencing similar collapse in the birth rate for as far as the eye can see, meaning the next 30, 40, 50 years. That's a half a century. It's going to have profound impact very quickly, Scott, because, and I've been saying this to my colleagues in the university, I think that this is going to be very a negative trend on universities um, down the road because more and more people are going to say, well, wait a minute, I don't have to go to university for four years and take on a student debt of twenty or $30,000 to get a degree because I really, really want to get that job and it's very competitive. If there's huge shortages and they're willing to take you even if you don't have mm-hmm. a degree and they're saying, we'll train you on the job, well, the most obvious question is, well, then why am I going to go to university for four years and roll up a big student debt if I don't have to? Now, I'm not trying to say universities are going to vanish. I do not believe that. But if you look back to pre-60s, pre-1960s, universities were very elite. Literally only one in 10 people went. 
Now, it tended to be because it was very expensive and blah, blah, blah. And then we massified the universities starting in the 60s, late 1960s, and the boomers. And so it went from 10% went to university to 30% approximately. I think we're going to see over the next 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, that number of one-third of high school students going to university is going to come back down. And the only people will go will be the people that have to go. I mean, to become a medical doctor, you have to have an MD degree. Yeah. You know, to become an accountant, you must have a chartered accounting degree. So there are some jobs that are going to continue to be delivered, some training, some skills, some specializations that will continue to be delivered by the universities. But I think that the, we're, the, 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 uh, we've, we're past peak university and we're going to be declining over the next third of a century to become much less important, still important in the sense it'll be elite, you know, for accounting and medicine and physics and mathematics. But many, many of those other degrees will fall by the wayside because you won't have to because of the incredible job shortages that are here as far as the eye can see. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, talking about experience in the workforce and rail and striking. Ian, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.